Hi, Stephen here. So as you can imagine, the current climate has made it harder to record my interviews for Talking Design and not being able to get into the studio at RMIT. I thought for the next little while I might reshare some of my favourite episodes from the past nine years. To begin with, the wonderfully talented Susie Stanford, a furniture and lighting designer who came to my attention over 10 years ago. Her work doesn't follow any trend, and she has a voice that I haven't heard anywhere else. I always say that I'm her number one fan, but I feel she has numerous fans in Australia and overseas. She was a guest on my show in July 2019, and it still remains with me. Enjoy. I'm Stephen Crafty, and I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University, and I'm with a person today, a designer, a furniture and lighting designer, Susie Stanford. I've been probably her number one fan for the last 10 years at least. I think she's quite exceptional, and I, I, she has such a busy life, but thank you for coming onto the program. Thank you. Susie, uh, look, I just, I don't know how I discovered you, but now I can't get you out of my mind in terms of your work it's it is quite different I see you as just someone who's ahead of the pack by miles and you have an interesting career you're not actually trained as a designer you actually started in London Mm. as an investment banker Mm. and then before that you studied criminology Mm. so that's tell me about your background because it isn't a traditional trajectory trajectory yeah. you didn't start with no. a design course I think what happened was I when I was younger I, I was born up in a family that were creatives and so I had a love of using my hands and exploring all different mediums from you know the classic you know child school sewing glasses to pottery to weaving um, to cake decorating all sorts of mad things tooling leather um, I was a big one for exhibit for entering the Royal Melbourne show every year with many categories covering all bases. Um, How old were so, you then? Well, just from when I was young, right, yeah. till probably about um, being in year nine or ten, so probably um, 15, 16. And I think what happened at that time was I was um, I changed schools and the direction at my new school was very about academia. It wasn't as kind of um, a focus on yeah. the arts. And so at that point I kind of... Um, Maybe I grew a bit of a brain um, and that brain <laughs> took me in a path which was, you know, directed at that time straight to university and then I went on from there with an opportunity to go to London for 10 years and um, as we talked about, I worked at, um, I ended up, you know, uh, that, during that time at an American investment bank. I eventually came home to Australia after 10 years and at that point it was very much, you know, when you've spent your 20s and 30s in an overseas country, you can either stay there or you say, look, I'm going to go home. And I thought perhaps I had a draw to come home Um, and... Um, after being home just for a couple of months and just spending time reconnecting with my beautiful family and re-establishing my life, um, I had a, my dad tragically died of a sudden death, and that process that took me through another journey of just actually realizing, you know, how precious life was, and particularly my relationship with my mother and how important it was to learn because she was a very creative person with an amazing talent, and so we just focused on our healing process was by using our hands. Your parents were actually ballroom dancers. Yes. And they were in Strictly Ballroom. That's right. They're quite mad themselves. Um, 
And their background was they had a soft toy manufacturing company, one of the biggest in Australia, called Jacob's Toys. So famous for things like Big Ted on Play School. So um, I spent that recovery time of sadness with my mum just learning from her, realising that um, – that you know, this was an opportunity to kind of slow life down and to go back to where I found happiness, which was through so, my hands. I mean, yeah. your CV. I think people should know your CV because it is pretty extraordinary. You started doing Paul Smith's jewellery yeah. in all his stores or sixteen yeah. of his stores yeah. worldwide. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So how did that? You know, you don't just go from investment banker to designing Paul Smith or Sir Paul Smith's yeah. jewellery. Well, I suppose I'm I'm a brave person. You know, I think I've got that Australian, you know, give it a go kind of mentality and I'm quite brave and I, and I, you know, I'm not shy. So I, um, yeah, the opportunity came where someone had seen the my work, the jewellery I was making and um, I followed it up with a buyer who was interested in the work and it just, you know, this I just... Was back in Australia? No, or? I was in Australia but they'd seen it through a friend of mine who was in the UK and so I just followed it up. I just went there and landed on their doorstep with a big smile on my dial and, and it just started from there and I had a very close relationship because I was working for his own stores as opposed to his label, Paul Smith. So it was very much working um, after the design team had developed a collection eight months ahead. It was about me then seeing their fabrication because he's very kind of um, symbol-led in his collections and then embracing that and thinking about that and bringing collection out that represented that and would work with the ready-to-wear collections. So it was, you know, a great privilege and I did thousands and thousands of pieces, all of them one-off and made by hand. And I think I wore myself out really <laughs> at the end of it. So, but it was a great experience. So... Mm. How do you start? I mean, you were an accessory buyer for a time as well. Mm. Um, but how do you make the break into? I mean, when did you start saying, I'm actually a furniture and lighting designer? Well, then or- I got an opportunity. Um, to um, be involved in a project with a friend of mine who's a prominent interior designer and I got opportunity to be involved in a fit-out, um, really from just leaning on each other, uh, this particular person and myself on a creative kind of madness idea because it was an opportunity to do something quite mad in a subterranean space. And um, through that, I was like seeking things out that represented what I felt that we could do in this space to make it joyful. And... There wasn't much around, so I was just like, well, I better make something. And so I started with this furniture collection and for this space, and it just grew from there. So I was just very lucky. So people who don't know Susie Stanford's work, and you'll be able to see it because we'll have images on the website, um, is you became known for recycling. Mm. I mean, I think that's probably where people yeah. know of you. Yeah. Colour, upcycling, re- up, upcycling mm. taking vintage linen uh, tea towels, yeah. applying them to furniture you found from yeah. the 1950s or armchairs. Yeah. And um, and then now your latest focus is more on the tapestries yeah. and upcycling tapestries. Yeah. Giving a whole new life to things that really yeah. were kind of considered, I hate the word kitsch, but, yeah. you know, people say, oh, you know, and they were done so beautifully, these yeah. tapestries. People yeah. People take months, years to do these mm. tapestries and you source them from all around the world. Yeah, and I think that is the, the privilege of my part in the process is that these are things which, you know, the power of the hand is so amazing when you take them out of their gaudy gilt frames 
And, you know, some people put little notes behind them saying how many hours they took or they have a little message to the person they made it for. And the fact is they're discarded. No one wants them. They're, you know, they're seen as, as you say, kitsch or just yeah. unwanted. But for me to have the privilege to rework those in a way that, you know, some pieces I do, I've done three-seater couches where I've used, you know, 60 tapestries that I've patchworked into a to a new life, it's an absolute privilege because it's someone's hand and I've got the opportunity to relive that and to rework it and to bring the joy back to the piece. The other thing that's interesting, I mean, you were, you were selling to Lane Crawford yeah. uh, for a number of years, also for Liberties yeah. for at least 10 years, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but you have clients now all over the world. Yeah. And I think you actually thrive when people ask you something really challenging. Yeah, no, like definitely. Like I love, you know, if I said, I've, you know, I love... Uh, um, horses, but only yeah. like you know stallions, countering that... ones. <laughs> only like ones with big manes. I know. And you say, "I'll find you those yeah, tapestries." There's no doubt that absolutely. I think did... that I think that's most people who make things. I think you're in your studio and you're very much in your own little world and your imagination. So when you're making pieces for hotels or for you know clients in retailers like Liberty or Lane Crawford. Because it's a labour of love in the sense you're using your hands, you're very much dreaming of the person you're making it for and you're formulating that. You've got an image of them. Like when you read a book and you create your character, I create all my characters. So when I got the opportunity to grab a real live one, well, that's just too much. Um, so I do say to them, give me the bossiest list, the longest list you can of everything you've ever dreamed or loved or gives you a feeling of nostalgia or enjoyment. And there's something about me, there's some kind of madness which allows things to swim towards me, and they do. So you'll give me the craziest thing and somehow I will get it for but you. But you really put yourself into a corner when yeah. someone requests something so specific. Yeah. Um, but it's... Think, it's, it's, it's well, do you I kind think, of... Do you... When you... All your sources from all over yeah. the seas, do you say, look, I'm looking for Yeah, a oh, no, absolutely. I'm no, then I do a special shout-out, which is like, we really need to get this, you know, hunt, hunt, hunt. Um, so, and I think I... It's more thinking... The, the the opportunity there for me is to, because I'm making something and everything I make is one-off, then once I've got the challenge, I'm, I'm actually making it for a real person. And so instead of me dreaming the person loves monkeys and they had a beautiful trip that in a river and they saw an amazing fish that swam by and that gave them a sense of joy and movement and putting the two together and then juxtaposing it with a bird. You know, in my mind, I've got my personal character I've made and I've made their journey. But if I've got their real journey, I, there's just no way I'm not going to get that and re relive it. And because, you, you know. And Susie, you also put your own signature on each mm. piece. So you tat, as you yeah. call it, yep. the ta tapestry, your own yep. piece. Yep. And I'm very fortunate um, I have a Harvey, my cat, on one of my Ottomans, uh, which you took a photo of and then you uh, hand embroidered. Yeah. It's really personal. Yeah, no, no, and absolutely. I and I think that's why my work, it's not um, it's not multiples. Everyone is one off. Um, every piece is numbered and I've got a register of stuff that's gone all around the world, hundreds of pieces. And there is a little message underneath. Every of them have my, fig uh, my, my um, fingerprint, which is my signature about representing the one. There's only one of them. And I give a little hint as to which piece I've made. Um, and I often think because they're hidden under the furniture, this stamp that I do, perhaps for a lot of people who get it straight from a department store or their architect mm. might, you know, have the place furnished when they arrive. 
they may never see it. Maybe that generation never sees it. Maybe it's the removalist man who sees it. Maybe it's the next generation that sees it and says, what's his funny little note? Um, but I think I got the joy from these funny little notes that I used to get <laughs> from the back of these tapestries that it's just an absolute, you know, I remember once going to a bookstore in London and it was a secondhand bookstore in Notting Hill and actually it became very famous from that terrible movie, Four Weddings and Funerals. Oh, yes. Anyway, we won't talk about that. Yeah. Um, but that bookstore was actually quite enchanting and behind the counter, um, not shown in the film because it was just too special. The gentleman had kept every little piece of paper that came out of books. So sometimes it's a photo, sometimes it was an invitation to something, sometimes it was a um, you know a, a note from a cafe, a little yeah. card, and all this madness. He had a big pegboard that went from the floor to the ceiling, and it was the same thing. It's about if you have the privilege to touch something that's already been here and to give it another life and another bit of joy. It really is. You know, it's not only great for the environment and for us as sustainable. It's actually that sense. It's been here before. It's got a story to tell, and it's your privilege to retell that story or to rework that story as your own. And whether that be through treasuring the little photo that you got out of a second-hand book or whether that be um, by recreating something into something else which has got more value than perceived value than the piece originally, it's a privilege. Um, Susie, you, you are literally ahead of the pack the way I see uh, design going. And, look, handcrafted, the very tactile, has been... In, in for the last five, seven years, I'd yeah. say, people are starting to really mm. uh, respond to things that have a past life. Yeah. But you're always ahead of things. And you were talking about your interest now in Japanese tapestries, mm. which fascinates me because mm. in my mind that's where things are kind of going mm. a little bit. Well, how I just do you think, know, How do you know no, when this? I just I, I find it kind of I just that intrigue, that oddness, like because I know that it's not a traditional craft in Japan. So this is not actually Japanese people. It's a traditional a craft in, in, the, um, in England. It's a very big thing, particularly for gentlemen to tat. Um, it's a big kind of European thing. So I... I just imagine those people, perhaps I don't understand them sitting there doing a cherry blossom for, you know, 140 <laughs> hours or doing Mount Fuji where they've never been to Mount Fuji or seen a geisha girl. And I just, I find it just intriguing that the, the labour of love. I remember one particular piece which actually I kept for myself because it just came with such an enchanting story. It was this, actually a really massive piece um, that was a big nude, a lady who lined down nude. But I actually got it and the gentleman I got it from gave me this whole story. His father had tattered it and his whole life had this embarrassment of this massive big lady with her exposed <laughs> pubic hair um, leaning back in this kind of sexualised And with move. a Japanese expression. No, but no Japanese, no, no Japanese involved. It was very much a kind of American look or, you know, I don't know what it was. But, but he had that burden of having to keep this piece <laughs> until his father died and then he couldn't get rid of it fast enough. And I just, well, I mean, I just, yeah, I think the other thing that, is mm. particularly singles you are, your work is the humour. Yeah. It is hilarious. Mm. You put in, um, uh, I mean, I've got one of your chairs at home mm. and, um, and you know, it looks like quite a traditional armchair and it's covered in suits and then at the back of it is mm. actually a pair of pants unzipped mm. with your husband's <laughs> um, hot, pink. hot pink jocks <laughs> exposed. So it's kind of that surprise element. Yeah. Um, Humour is obviously something yeah. that is... Is it something you think has been missing in design yeah, for look, a while? I, I, you know, I am... 
I'm always seeking the sunny side. And so I think it's important. I think that, you know, we become too melancholy. We become too obsessed with multiples and following rather than leading. And I think there's nothing like a smile which can uplift anything or anyone and I just I I seek my work to do that to others and whether it be through something kind of as crass as that not crass but just kind of a bit obvious but um to something that just um I use a lot of nostalgia you know particularly when I was working in jewellery it was a lot about bringing symbols in whether they be the little enamelled bluebird or things that you might go wow I had one of those when I was little and that whole Thinking, just thinking to the past, or oh, my little friend down the street had one. I always coveted it, you know. So it's about that nostalgia, and I think that's also a smile. It's about thinking backwards, but thinking forward with the joy that that brings and the strength or the courage. And I feel that's the part of my work. It doesn't always. It's not. It doesn't have to be obviously humour. It's about having a feeling, a feeling of connection, of belonging, of the power of the hand, of expressing yourself. And that's where I seek to be different. I don't want to do things the same. I want to do everything. I want to. Do it for people, for about them, for them, for them to enjoy. That's how really you, important to me. How do you, um, Susie, start the, the process, whether it's a light mm. or whether it's, you know, is it the client that just initiates Yeah, that? no, it, it is. is. It's kind of because a lot of times I'm working with architects, so I'll get a view of the project that the space is going into. If I have the opportunity, I actually like to visit the site because that sometimes brings other surrounding, you know, influences to me. Um, otherwise, I just do a lot of research. So I'll, I'll look, you know, Google Maps to see where it is, what's the library that's near it, what's some significant buildings, things that I can feed from to make sure that my pieces belong. I, that sense of belonging is very important. I don't want things flying flying in from above as if they're more superior than something that's already been there before. It's about me taking that privilege and reworking it and reliving it. So, Susie, so you have some pretty interesting clients now all yeah. over the world. Yeah, no, amazing. And you were telling so me, lucky. you know, you've got this French couple mm. in Paris mm. who are just buying up big and, yeah. you know, and at least, you know, mm. took over about eight or ten pieces how does that relate? You know, you don't know their apartment. You haven't been to pa- no. you've been to Paris, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Times. No, I googled where they were, so I had so a little image in my mind. But more than that, I mean, they were just so gorgeous in the sense that we've done these Skype calls of every two weeks of checking in on the work, and they can't speak English and I can't speak French, so it really was just giggling and squealing and a whole, me holding up all kind of mad things for them to kind of wink at or not. Do. I mean, it's just been quite. You know, it's been a great privilege, but. Um, yeah, I suppose, um, no, it's the power of the imagination. You know, imagination will take us everywhere. I'm really a big believer of that. It's the power to to dream and to create those stories in your mind and then with the t- you know with having the privilege of being able to use your hands, whether they be working a medium like ceramic or whether it be working with steel or whether it be upholstery, all those mediums um, are an opportunity to express that, that um, dream. Susie, uh, you know, it is very specific. I mean, I say mm. all your work's very, very specific, very client-driven to the point. Mm. Um, does it sometimes become too problematic, though, if someone rings up and say, look, I'm looking for a Siamese cat with, mm. you know, one mm. red eye and one <laughs> blue eye? Well, I'd quite like that. No, but it's more sometimes what happens is um, sometimes it can open up to design by committee. And I just, at that point, I love it because I want them to love that work. But it, sometimes it takes the joy away and takes the actual, um, the vision. And you the know, surprise. And so you suddenly start getting a bit, you lose your confidence as an artist. You kind of go, oh, I'm not sure, you know, yeah. and and then it's gone. And at that point I have to say to the client, I think we're not suited for each other and I, you know, I just want to, 
you know, say it's been a great experience, but perhaps we can't go forward. I've never successfully been able to do that because at that point they just wanted more. So it becomes very problematic. But um, I tr- do try to do that because I just think I can't actually go forward with the same spirit that I want to in my work, you know. Um, Suzy, you also do quite large installations. Mm. You did something for um, Lauriston yeah. um, Girls' School, but also uh, more recently at Chadston yeah. you did a major installation. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that because it yeah, was that very, was an amazing work. That was a, an amazing. It wasn't Chadston; it was the people who oh, owned Chadston called the Vicinity Group. So, yeah. no, no, it was um, actually at uh, a new centre called the I Glen. Don't think, I don't think it's not the same people; it's a different. No, different, it's the same people. Yeah, is it? Anyway, it's at um, the Glen, yeah. and um, yeah. it's called. Unfold. Unfold. And it was an opportunity. They approached me. They were opening, reworking a centre they'd bought and they approached a couple of artists to do an installation in the site. Um, Once again, I researched it, where it was, what it was, you know, what they were trying to achieve, their own marketing material, but my own investigations. And um, it actually is in a location which was close to a a very high-need special school. And a lot of their material was about the community and bringing a new community, creating a new community hub. And I then suddenly, you know, it it was an opportunity to actually say, well, that is a community (laughs) that is in in your catchment and could I use the opportunity to actually work with them? So I put forward an idea that I would work in um, collaboration with this special school, has students from the age of four to 18, um, very high needs in terms of their needing allied health services, so they all need medical support. Um, A lot of them are unable to, um, uh, you know, will bound, will wheelchair-bound, etc., or of very low IQ. And um, I worked with them over a course of three, four weeks um, in the art department to create um, a piece that they made. And it was a great privilege. And it ended up being three metres long by two metres high. And it was... um, you know, we, 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 yeah, I was really proud of the piece. And they were incredibly proud of the and piece, the so it was great. And all the wove their own threads. They wove their own threads, yeah. And some of them were kind of coming up with yeah, anything. Yeah, They'd kind yeah. of given an open brief. Well, yeah, well, and, and, absolutely, and that went from the extreme of people, you know, drought. Like I'd give them a couple of beads and I kind of hoped they'd put three beads on maximum because I'm a bit of a control freak. And, <laughs> and, of course, some of them were 33 beads. I was like, right, okay. <laughs> but then some of them, you know, because they didn't have the power of um, – you know, kind of control of their limbs. We had to we had to make the choice with them through their eyes and being able to blink um, to actually say yes, I want that colour. So some of them had just a colour that was their choice, and that might take you know twenty minutes to have actually worked with them to get that output. But that was as valid as any other piece. And the piece is 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 um, yeah, it's got a really. Yeah. It's got a lovely feel for that and it's reason. it's a permanent installation, permanent installation. at the Glen Shopping yeah. Centre. You yeah. can see it. Yeah. Uh, no, it is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. And it was just – it was absolutely amazing to have those children come to an opening and them to see a piece that they'd made on the wall that's permanently going to be there in celebration of their hands. It was just such a privilege. And I just – you know, those kind of things, I try to take one on one every, every one every two years and it's I find that it just – you know, it just uplifts for me is like nothing else because the joy of, you know, doing something with children is amazing. Susie, you just don't seem to have any limits in terms of what you can do. Mm. You know, you say, I'll do this, I'll do that. Um, what would your ideal job be? Like, if you know, if something comes across your desk, is it a collection? Is it 
what do you think is all you don't? Well, I think that I think I love collaborating, and the reason I'm able to work across so many mediums is that I do collaborate. You know, I work with fine craftsmen in different mediums where I can't explore. So, you know, whether it be from metal work to um, furniture restoration, I work in collaboration with people, and I wouldn't have my talents without their talents. And so, to me, I think as any artist would say, working in isolation, you you can get madder and madder, and it's quite nice to have a madder and madder gang, and that to me I love. So I think I'm seeking continually to make my, my what I feel my output is to have some worth, to be worthwhile. And so things like that project with that special school is really important to me. And I wondered now whether I open myself up to work with refugee communities or um, other opportunities where I can actually allow people to express themselves through their hands and make it Make make a conversation. I think that's that's an, that's an opportunity, and I would um, like to explore that more. Um, look, Susie, I think you you work at such an incredible pace. I don't even like to think how you achieve it all. I I just put it out of my head. Um, but look, I have I have been incredibly inspired by you over the years. I think um, you're really one of the most important designers I have come across in my lifetime. I feel very honoured to have you on the program, and. Um, Look, I just keep looking forward to every new project because I know it, um, it'll just bring a smile. Oh, thank you, Stephen. So thanks so much for coming on today. You've been with the wonderful Susie Stanford, a furniture and lighting designer who literally, you need to see her work. It is really quite extraordinary. Thanks so much for listening.